Greetings, pod listeners. Welcome to Wooden Teeth. My name's Jake Williams. Today on the pod, we have a guy named Michael J. Thompson. He is the co-editor of a new book. It's called Anti-Science and the Assault on Democracy, Defending Reason in a Free Society. It's a collection of essays about the role that science must play in a democratic society and why that's under threat today. I think you're going to like this one. Before we get to the conversation, I wanted to give you a heads up. If you happen to be at South by Southwest in Austin this coming March, we're going to be there too. We've got some exhibition space in the Wellness Pavilion on March 9th and 10th. You can come visit us. So stop by. We're still figuring out how we want to, you know, make it an attractive experience at the booth what things we should give away, what interactive uh, experiences we should offer. So if you have suggestions, send them our way. Website is woodenteethshow.com. Okay, let's get to my conversation with Michael J. Thompson and his book, Anti-Science and the Assault on Democracy. Michael J. Thompson, welcome to the pod. Hi, Jake. Thanks for having me. So the title of your book, Anti-Science and the Assault on Democracy, Defending Reason in a Free Society. You are the editor, and the book contains a collection of original essays from experts in political science, uh, hard sciences, philosophy, history, and other disciplines. Your discipline is political science, and even though you are the editor of the book, you also have uh, an essay in it uh, titled Science and the Democratic Mind. And I just wanted to read a quote uh, from what you wrote. Uh, You said, quote, The erosion of science as a style of thinking, as an attitude toward the world, natural and social, is having deleterious effects on our democratic culture and on the project of a democratic, rational society. So anti-science isn't exactly brand new, but why do you think it seems to be accelerating these days? I think that uh, there's a a few impulses in modern culture that are pushing us toward anti-science. And I think one of them is honestly the kind of erosion of standards within uh, our educational system. I think that's one of the uh, primary problems. I also think there's another problem, which is that people are afraid of what science really is. Science really demands that we change or modify our beliefs or ideas about the world based on new evidence. And I think this is becoming really frightening um, uh, in modern society. You know, I mean, I think the rapidity of change, of globalization, of um, all sorts of uh, technological transformations and shifts really means that people are falling back more and more on what they feel secure in. And that's going to be traditional beliefs or customs or uh, beliefs that their, you know, friends or family have. Science is going to ask you to question this and think instead of rely on emotion. And I think that that coupled with the decline of uh, science education in our culture more broadly is really responsible for this. You know, so on the one hand, in other words, there's a kind of decay within the society um, of science as something that is important 
And I mean science, not technology. And I think that's important to distinguish the two. Um, you know, when I was a kid growing up in the 80s, um, I was weaned on public television, on PBS. And I saw documentaries about the universe and the cosmos and, and biology and history of science. And it was just wonderful. It was just a wonderful thing. And I think that that has shifted pretty dramatically. So we're living in this age in which anti-science seems to be on the rise. And we're also living in an age of fantastic technological advancement. And it seems that technological advancement, um, especially when it comes to social media, might play a role in the promotion of anti-science, ironically, um, via the enhanced ability for people to share anti-scientific views. Is that, is that what's going on right now? I think it's going on. I think this just really puts on display why we really should not collapse science and technology together. I mean, clearly, advances in scientific knowledge have enabled uh, computer technology, communications technologies to occur. I mean, clearly, there's a material connection between these two things. But you can use technology, be a user of technology, while being completely anti-scientific in terms of your values or your attitudes. And I think social media is a perfect example. I mean, clearly, it's a, it's a tool just like anything else. I mean, in theory, if you step back. But once you embed technology within a society and its power relationships and, its, and the way that that society operates, then it's, it, it is going to be used for whatever the kind of dominant attitudes within that society are. And I think what you see happening now is a kind of clumping of different groups together based on their beliefs or attitude. The truth of the matter is we live in a very complicated society, very technologically advanced, very scientifically complex. And if people are not able to assess information on their own, they're going to reach out for answers that make them feel secure. And I think that social media is just perfectly constructed for that kind of activity. So we live here in the U.S. for the time being, at least, in a democratic society. Uh, we have free speech. We tolerate uh, views of all sorts, including anti-scientific views. So who's supposed to be the voice for science? And specifically, should scientists, and I don't mean political scientists, I mean uh, quote-unquote real scientists, no offense, I study political science too, but I'm talking about you know, the chemists, the climate scientists, etc. Should scientists be political activists in this discourse? I think there have to emerge those scientists that see the true principles of what science actually is, and they have to... They, do have to play a crucial role in advocating for why science is important as in, in terms of clarifying and strengthening uh, public debate and public intelligence. This, you know, expertise, just having, being an expert in chemistry or an expert in physics isn't enough. And I think, you know, that you used to have, especially throughout the post-war, you know, those first several decades after World War II, you had a whole series of scientists who were not only experts in their field, but were public intellectuals. You know, 
Robert Oppenheimer or all the way up through Carl Sagan, you had people who spoke out and said, look, science can do these wonderful things. Science is this really remarkable method of how we can think through the world and how we can come up with answers to things. What really is a problem, it seems to me, is that 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 generation isn't being replaced. Um, and what's happening is people who are experts in chemistry, who are experts in medicine, who are experts in these things, they no longer are out there advocating for the importance of science as a kind of intellectual and cultural enterprise. And that's a problem because now science has become absorbed more and more into the kind of economic power structure of, uh, of American society, of global society. And they are becoming increasingly, I think, tools um, for economic and technological advancement. And so in many ways, even those experts maybe don't see this, don't see uh, science the way that we were trying to frame this in this book, that science is more than just the control of nature or the kind of trying to understand nature in order to exploit it. Science really is a much broader human capacity uh, for thinking through the world. So I think, yeah, scientists, it'd be great if you had another generation of scientists who are also public intellectuals who could come out and revive this interest, that would be wonderful. Maybe it was because in the 50s and 60s, you really had this kind of civilizational crisis in, in the world because of the atomic bomb, that people really were becoming overwhelmed by the thought of that the whole species could be destroyed. But we're facing something similar to this now with the environmental destruction, uh, environmental degradation, the war the, uh, against the kind of biosphere that's occurring now. And where is, the, where is that generation of Carl Sagan's to come out and say, you know, science matters. We are in the midst of a crisis. One in many ways is just as serious as the kind of nuclear atomic threat of the 50s and 60s and 70s. And I just think that there is this real gaping hole within our society for this kind of discourse. Instead, if a report comes out about climate change, people either either shrug their shoulders or um, if they're anti-science, uh, it's very easy to say, well, you know, there's all these other things that could be causing this. And I think like, you know, there really isn't a culture anymore that tries to embrace some sense of how science and our happiness and our, our, our public welfare go together. There are some voices out there. There's like the Neil deGrasse Tysons of the world, uh, thinking of a, of a popular voice who share these kind of views. But I also think that it's hard to break through with a message of any type um, in, in today's modern media landscape. And also, I mean, haven't there always been, you know, um, anti-scientists or kind of kooks in the world uh, who've espoused views similar to the ones that we hear today. And why does it matter more now than it did then? Yeah, there've always been the kooks. There's always been uh, those that uh, denied um, certain kind of scientific findings or the scientific method. Or I, I think it matters more now in many ways because it's not just an issue of debate within 
intellectual circles. Anti-science is now a cultural force. And that's different. Um, it's one thing to have a debate about whether Darwin was right or, or wrong, um, which is an important, which was at one time at least an important debate to have. Now it's tied to a kind of personality or an attitude, not just about science, but about reason in general. It's, it's more than a, you know, science teaches skepticism of authority. I mean, you have to be skeptical of authority if you really uh, imbibe the scientific method because you're always testing and retesting the theories or the ideas uh, that you've been taught. I mean, otherwise, there'd be no progress in science. But a healthy skepticism about authority is different from a nihilistic kind of approach uh, to expertise or to reason. And that's why this anti-science is different. This anti-science is embedded as a cultural force, a cultural mentality that is rooted a lot more deeply. The, the thing about the kooks is you can always, in a public forum, disprove the kook. The kook may go away. The kook may have followers that will always believe him or her. The problem now is that with social media and the kind of decentered way our public lives are lived, I can live in that bubble forever. That even if someone disproves something or someone shows it's inadequate in some corner of the society or the culture, uh, it may never permeate or migrate into where uh, all, the, all these other belief systems uh, reside. Let's talk about definitions. So first, uh, how would you define anti-science? I think anti-science is a negative attitude toward experiment, revision, uh, a kind of uh, more than a skepticism. It's a cynicism about reason's capacity to know objective uh, fact and truth. Um, an anti a person who is anti-science is someone who would say, I don't care what the data says, this is what I believe is right. A person who is anti-science is someone who says, that's what all those experts say, but they're all paid for by uh, corporations. Um, talks about vaccinations in terms of medic uh, medicine, in terms of, uh, that doesn't mean that doctors are always right or the medical community is always right. What it does mean is that an anti-scientist is not a skeptic. An anti-scientist is much stronger than a skeptic. A person who has anti-scientific views is a cynic about uh, uh, objective knowledge and reason. And they believe on some level that their beliefs, their reasons, their truths um, are all that matter. And I think that is a really prevalent attitude within our society. I mean, look at the, I mean, all the way up to the, to the presidency. I mean, this is, this is, um, that I think is what anti-science really is at its, at its heart. There's another term, uh, pseudoscience, and I think it overlaps somewhat with anti-science. Uh, and I'm drawing this definition from uh, one of the essays from the book by Michael Ruse, uh, Democracy and the Problem of Pseudoscience, which I really enjoyed. And to kind of summarize his definition, pseudoscience um, is uh, our claims purporting to be knowledge 
driven by cultural values rather than the empirical world. And some of the examples these days come from both the left and the right. On the left, you often have anti-vaccine or anti-GMO views. On the right, you especially have anti-global warming. What's the threat of pseudoscience in our culture and democracy today? I think the threat of pseudoscience is is precisely, uh, well, it's linked to anti-science in the following way. The idea that values take precedence over empirical knowledge. The idea that that is in that is exactly what science. It's one of the reasons why science and democracy really do um, kind of support one another, because democratic societies can only really be. I mean, modern, liberal, rational democratic societies, um, as opposed to say the, the democracies of antiquity. Modern liberal democracies require, on some level, that even if I don't believe what you say, that I tolerate a difference of opinion. But on another level, a truly democratic society would be one where hmm, I modify my ideas about the world based on um, new evidence or new knowledge about the world. And this could be about this could be this could concern gender, sexuality, sexual orientation, uh, race, uh, all sorts of things that uh, beliefs that you have. Because you have to remember, values are extremely powerful, unique forms of concepts uh, in in the human mind. They're usually embedded in us at a very early age through our family, and they're usually backed up by our uh, somewhat immediate community. And by the time we're, say, 15 or 16, we're still living within the web of values that we've incorporated from um, our traditions and customs, usually from uh, our families. And for most people, the only way that you explode those value systems is when you start asking questions about them and saying, you know, I was raised to believe X, but I think Y is right. And I'm going to replace you know, X with Y. And that is a fundamental aspect, I think, of what science does. So in a lot of ways, if you say values take precedence over over a factual knowledge, then what you're saying is there's a resistance to to change and transformation. And so older ideas, older habits can actually be retained in the culture about race or about glo- about the environment or about any number of things. And that's actually a point of regress rather than social progress. Yeah, values, I agree, uh, shouldn't take precedent over factual knowledge, but there have been instances in which values or have led to what came to be scientifically confirmed beliefs. And, and the instances I'm thinking about are one, one of which that was shared by Michael Rusin, the essay that I just mentioned, was evolution itself, he argues, um, could be viewed originally as a pseudoscience. He argues that um, before Charles Darwin's Origin of the Species came along in 1859, there was an ideological movement, really, that, that uh, preceded it, centered on progress, 
that led to the ideas that were eventually confirmed uh, by science. And that, that led me to, to think and question about how our views about homosexuality have evolved and whether or not it is the case that you could argue that the belief uh, that, that we are all human and equal despite our sexual orientation led eventually to science, which eventually led to things like removing homosexuality as a classification in the DSM as a disorder. I mean, is there, is there such a thing as good pseudoscience? There are good values. Yeah. I don't know if that's, I don't think there is good pseudoscience, but there's certainly good values. And it could be, for example, and remember, I don't think all values that we have necessarily uh, have to be transformed. I mean, that would be almost impossible to live a life that way. There'd be no coherence to our existential world. I just think that it's, it's a matter of the fact that the culture can change, the fact that the values can transform um, is testament to our ability as rational people uh, to be able to transform views based on, based on evidence. Um, you could say the same thing about cancer. People thought you could catch cancer in the 1950s or 60s or 70s or about uh, all sorts of diseases that uh, we've learned like, no, you should, that stigmas um, on other people are a kind of, kind of way of approaching things that we don't know or don't understand that really is non-democratic and anti-democratic. So I think, you know, even though pseudoscience may end up on, in some points saying, you know, well, what we what we purported would be true ended up being confirmed by scientific method. That could be true, but the real issue is, as as I see it at least, is the question about whether we have ideas about the world that really run against all of the confirmed knowledge about the world. That's when anti science really kicks in. It's one thing to be skeptical about what the scientists tell us. I mean, skepticism, like I said before, skepticism is a democratic, I think, uh, feature that democracy and science both share. But it becomes a problem when um, I am absolutely resistant to anything other than my belief system. And I think that's when you're in the realm of anti-science. Science isn't exactly in our constitution. Uh, there is, of course, the separation of church and state in our Constitution. Is there more public policy action that needs to be taken, in your view, when it comes to ensuring that the decisions we make as a democracy should be rooted in science? I think that opens up a, a, a danger, because one of the problems, as going back to the earlier part, what we were saying before, is the idea that science and democracy have to be seen as blending at the level of attitudes within a culture. You know, I was at a talk a few weeks ago about this and uh, giving a talk about this. And one of the people in the audience said that the only solution to this was going to be if our, if we did make a public policy change where we had boards of scientists actually review democratic decisions and say like, well, this is the, the, this may be the will of the people, but this is, this goes against what we know about 
you know, whatever area of science. I mean, that's an extreme, obviously. But, um, you know, at this point, the way the democratic process works, the representative system works, the problem is stemming from the cultural attitudes, the cultural beliefs on left and right. So really what has to, what we have to start asking ourselves is how do we begin to fact check? How do we begin to inject scientific attitudes about skepticism and so on and so forth back into our kind of educational curriculum, back into our culture, and back into all the kind of practices? I mean, journalism, for example, you know, less and less people reading verified news sources is also a part of this. Not that journalism is science, but it does follow some of the kind of principles of science um, in terms of evidence and how, what you can infer from, from evidence that's presented, how valid is the evidence. These basic kind of questions that you would ask yourself, these are part of um, an attitude about knowledge and an attitude about authority. And I think that is something that is withering in the culture. So I don't think there's a public policy way out. But um, clearly, clearly, as far as I can see, uh, the bulk of this problem is really stemming from, uh, from, from the culture. Is there a fundamental tension between science and religiosity, especially in this country when it comes to Christianity, that inhibits our ability as a society to advance scientific dialogue in our politics? You know, usually it depends on the, uh, on the religious belief. Uh, I mean, you can't say all Christians have the same view about the relationship of science, uh, science and faith, for example. Catholics have a very different, I mean, the Catholic Church even accepts the teachings of Darwin, um, a physicist priest actually came up with the theory of what later became known as the Big Bang. But then again, there are other religious traditions that are immediately hostile toward any kind of uh, human inquiry into the natural world. So I think it becomes problematic um, at certain level to say like all religiosity because um, because people who are religious can also accept scientific views. They may not be run deep enough to make them uh, leave their religious beliefs, but I don't think that's really necessary. At the end of the day, um, people with common sense religious views and common sense views about science, I don't think they will have any contradictions um, in, their, in their life. I think, however, in terms of politics, there has been a real success at uh, coalitions of groups um, coming together, for example, uh, corporate groups that want to lobby for the reversal of, um, you know, regulations on pollution and um, certain kind of religious groups that want to attack the validity of science. Uh, yes, I think that that is a more, that's actually a much more toxic problem. Um, and I think you can reach out to certain religious groups uh, on the right, for example, who uh, would be able to aid in whipping up anti-science uh, beliefs.
how did this book come together? You've assembled some really smart essays here. Um, and what was the genesis of the project? The genesis of the project really was uh, my co-editor and I, uh, I think just, um, I think when it really started to come about, it was really the apex of this uh, anti-vaccination movement. And um, it, it was all over the newspapers and, and everywhere. And I said, you know, it's not just that. It's, you know, link this to the uh, anti-climate change attitudes. Link this to knowledge that we have about immigration. Link this to knowledge that we have about all sorts of things. And and they said, you know, really the decay of, of scientific attitudes is really enabling many ideas about the world that are really undermining uh, our democratic culture. I mean, you can think about this debate that's going on right now about, uh, about the building this wall between Mexico and the United States. The idea that there is an emergency situation, the idea that this country is being overrun by illegal immigration from that border is absolutely absurd by any measure that you take. It doesn't mean that certain people are experiencing things in one way or the other. That's a different discussion. But the idea that you know immigration has been falling, it's been it's uh, illegal immigration over the border has been it makes no difference. If people have an an anxiety or a fear, then it's going to lead to uh, anti-democratic politics. So, you know, I think all these things were linked. All these things are linked, in a lot of ways. You know, I was somebody who was in graduate school in the 1990s and just had to fight off tooth and nail, left and right, um, academic postmodern theories, undermining science, undermining, ra the, you know, rationalism and reason. And, uh, you know, what I think we all saw, uh, each contributor, was a kind of continuation of what we had to do academically at the intellectual level in the 1990s was now happening at the level of everyday life and culture. It had almost migrated outward into the culture as a whole. And so all of us kind of shared that kind of belief that this was actually a really important thing. And also, as a second point, I think it was time to make the case that science and democracy really need each other, that a democratic society is one that is a rational society. It doesn't mean it's a society of scientists, for sure, but it's a society that should be more skeptical of, of authority. It's a society that should be more skeptical about, uh, um, about uh, what other people tell them or what other people say is true, and um, that these are not only scientific values, these are democratic values, and that you know, the 18th century, uh, the people who created the Constitution and the framed the government were also believers in a kind of enlightened version of science and its capacity for human good. So with all that put together, we said, OK, we really need to put these views in print. And uh, unfortunately, it's still uh, it's still relevant. We've talked about a lot of examples of how anti-science is impeding our progress as a society to advance, thinking more positively, what's your greatest hope for how we can apply science to solve a problem in society today? Um, the biggest one, and I think that this should be on the top of almost anyone's list, is uh, what we can do with environmental destruction, climate change, and uh, the 
destruction of the biosphere in general. If we as a, as a global society can embrace the one language of, of science, of reason, and, and kind of link that to the problems that people have on an everyday level, then you've got a new phase of global history that could open up. In Southeast Asia now, you have this massive problem of plastic refuse clogging everything up all over the oceans, affecting people's health. It's just a, it's a complete disaster. The people know this is a problem. You know, it's a question of connecting the kind of people who steer society and the people who are affected by it. And if science can actually, I guess, cultivate within uh, everyday people a kind of new public will against this kind of these kinds of practices and authorities of the status quo, then that would be a, a major paradigm shift, I think, in, in human history. So we've got this big challenge before us in global destruction, uh, primarily caused by climate change, and we need to motivate uh, people, especially a new generation, to figure out how we avoid that. You mentioned earlier about previous generations and our um, intense, our, our goal to go to the moon. Do you think that there's a, a political or a psychological difference between motivating society to um, reach a level that humans haven't reached before versus motivating a society to prevent our own destruction? There probably is a difference in motivation, uh, but the difference in motivation could also come from a difference in uh, people's awareness and the way they frame the problem. And I think that it's not, you know, we definitely have a lot of awareness that uh, we're exposed to the idea that uh, there's a problem in the United States, but only intellectually. And so I think, um, unfortunately, what really motivates people to, to act is when they actually, it's like when the smog in Los Angeles or New York in the 1960s, when the smog was actually choking people. That's when it was like, we have to do something. Unfortunately, that's the motivating factor when it comes to something negative. But um, I do think we need something that's on, on the par with the project of getting to the moon or what certain members of Congress are now talking about, a kind of environmental new deal. There has to be some kind of mass effort that links the local uh, with the with the global. There, there has to be. And I think that um, the uh, uh, the big problem is going to be, as, as opposed to, say, what I was talking about before in the Philippines, for example, where people are living among the, their own refuse, um, is until that really happens here, people are not going to see it as an immediate emergency. And that's that's just a tragedy. Well, I hope that your book inspires people to act. I think it will. Anti-Science and the Assault on Democracy, Defending Reason in a Free Society. Michael J. Thompson, editor. Thank you very much for being with us. Thanks, Jake. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Michael J. Thompson for having the chat. I hope you liked it. Next pod, for real this time, because I think I previewed this the last time I did this, we're going to have a new edition. It's the News with Friends edition. Trying something new, we're going to invite people to come by uh, who are friends of the pod to kind of process current events, uh, especially from a, a 
public policy and public health perspective. We plan to have that first one out next week. Stay tuned. Join us then. I'll see you.